Should be live. Sure, I'm screwing something up. Somebody has to say something, or I'm not here. There we go. Victory. Just got to finish a post on Instagram. There we go. Boom. All right. There we go. Done. Hey, everyone. How's it going? So Monday, what are we going to do? Let's hang out. Let's talk about uh, things and space and stuff. Uh, I am, can the, Arjone is asking, can the Weekly Space Hangout find guests for open space just like they can for the Weekly Space Hangout? Is it just your friends? Sure, by all means. Um, so one of the things that I've been wanting to do with the open space is, is bring in some of the guests, some of the people who I've been interviewing and for some of the stories that I've been investigating, like I'll give you an example. I just did this episode about, um, about in situ resource utilization, what's happening with building things in space. And there was the people from made in space that were really helpful to us. They provided us a lot of great information as well as the folks at planetary resources. They gave us great uh, graphics and videos and things like that. And I would love to have some of the people come and, you know, have someone from one of those groups join me to talk and to answer questions, just to really get into the nitty gritty of what would the Arcanaut look like or what would, uh, you know, the Arcid mining robot look like and how would they work and where, where are they from a status? So I think that's, that's one of the ideas that I would really like to sort of investigate. Uh, the other, I, another example is, is, um, Brad sort of one of the, the principal investigator for the Louvoir telescope, right? Like I've brought up Louvoir a couple of times now. I know you all think it's a great idea. I want to bring in Brad Peterson is the uh, principal investigator. And so we can just like ask him questions about Louvoir. And, uh, I think you guys would dig that. So, uh, Arjun, can I get the starts with the bank guy? Yeah, that's no problem. Ethan Siegel, for sure. I could definitely get Ethan to show up and, and hang out for an hour. So I would love a way to just be able to let you folks directly access these people who are working on some of these projects. And so you kind of are going to have to trust me, right? I'm going to be one of those sushi chefs, and you're just going to say, I'll have whatever you want to make, and I will bring guests who I think are really interesting to the table and we can uh, go from there. Now, before we get into too deep into this, uh, I want to show you something which I'm sure you've had a chance to see, but but this is amazing. Check this out. All right, uh, you can see this picture. This is the first confirmed image of a newborn planet caught with the European Southern Observatory's very large telescope. And so what you're looking at is an actual photograph of a planet, newly forming planetary system, and there's a planet there. And this is the first time that that has ever been seen. And uh, it's just, it's an astonishing feat. And the best part about it is that this is a ground-based telescope, right? This is an, a, it's a bunch of telescopes. It's the very large telescope, which is actually four separate telescopes in Chile, all working together as an interferometer 
to gather images and they've got this special instrument on board the telescope called sphere and its job is to is to do this kind of thing to directly observe these so it's going to be able to find planets orbiting other stars and the hope is while it does its survey it's going to turn up hundreds of planets directly observed so not inferred by the radial velocity method or the transit method it's going to directly take pictures of planets so this is just this totally new age and it's really exciting and this is like one of the first images that is coming out from this from this new instrument and so uh, imagine what will happen when you get these bigger telescopes you get things like the 30 meter telescope or the overwhelmingly large telescope uh, the Magellan telescope, and they've got these kinds of instruments on board. I know we want those space telescopes, but it's going to be pretty amazing what is going to happen just from the ground as well. So, so don't worry about the, about the space telescopes too badly. <laughs> Julian Martin says, can you please do a collaboration with a YouTuber from the U S in which you explain to him the metric system and he has to explain to you the Imperial system. So he had to make a very long video. That's a good idea. <laughs> That's awesome. Uh, especially when we want to talk about cubits or, or furlongs or smoots. But uh, the reality is that in Canada, we're kind of bilingual, mostly about both imperial and metric. I try to use metric just because I feel like that's my patriotic duty to to go with the metric system. But the reality is, you know, when we go to the so supermarket, we buy our apples by the pound, we buy our uh, our meat by the hundred grams, we buy our milk by the liter, we buy like, we know what our weight is in pounds. We measure people's height and feet. We're, we're everything. We're both. So. All right. And yeah, so thanks as always to Nightbot and the people pulling Nightbot's strings there. Uh, how, many, how many furlongs in a cubit? I don't know. Google would probably know. Uh, all right. So Mr. Tommy Pickles asks, uh, would it be useful to bring asteroids to the Earth or to the moon in order to mine them? The reality is neither, I think right? The, what you want to do is you want to just mine the asteroids where they are, because moving an asteroid takes a tremendous amount of energy. You would have to take an asteroid, you have to put thrusters on it, you would use a propellant to move it anywhere that you would want to go. And if you bring it back into either the moon or the earth, you are breaking my number one rule, right? Which is that gravity wells are for suckers. You don't want to try and put this stuff back down into a gravity well, you want to leave it in space. So I think the future is really going to be these mining robots that go to places like, you know, some of these nearby asteroids, they can scour the surface of them, pull off all of the minerals that they want and send those minerals back to low earth orbit or to lunar orbit or out to the moon to Mars to be able to construct larger structures in space. And doing that, that latest episode that I did the one about in situ resource utilization, um, I saru you really see how little we'll need to build down here on earth. We should be able to build the vast majority of the infrastructure that we require out there just in space. So I don't see us needing to really bring stuff back to earth, bring stuff to the moon, unless you want some of that material down on the earth, but no, just leave it in space. It's so expensive to take stuff from earth up to space. Just leave it in space. Uh, 
Paranor is saying, okay, so Sergio Botero says James Webb Space Telescope 2029. So I don't know if you saw XKCD today posted a great uh, comic. I'll see if I can find it actually because it was awesome. And the gist of it was that I guess Randall had um, James had guessed, had looked at the uh, – the various dates for when the James Webb was going to be predicted that it was going to be built. And then, okay, here we go. So you can see here, these were all the dates that they predicted when James Webb would be released. And he's guessing now late 2026. So that's when uh, we'll see. You can see sort of all of the dates, the, the, the revised launch dates. So, I think the March 2021 is going to be pretty close to when things actually happen. Uh, this latest report is um, is really good, uh, really detailed, is by an independent people, and they really dug into Northrop Grumman's development efforts and got a much better sense as independent the status of where this, this project is. So I think um, we will see... Uh, that the, this feels like a much more realistic date now, but but again, who knows, right? Maybe it will be 2026. I wouldn't be surprised. So I think it was awesome. All right. Um, let's move on. A.B. Scott and Flower asks, could James Webb be launched on a thicker rocket like the BFR to simplify its unfolding? The, I mean, no, right? The whole point of... James Webb is it has been constructed. It's ready to go, right? They've built all the instruments. They've built the mirrors. They've built all the folding, unfolding. All of the parts are all ready to go. They know the 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 fairing they're going to be using. They're going to be using the Ariane 5. To then go and change it to be able to go into a BFR, which is a rocket that doesn't even exist yet, um, would probably require a lot more additional engineering. So, so just like they know what they need to do now, they should just keep going until it's done. So, uh, Adam Lane asks if, if a supernova went off from a nearby star, what would we see? Would the light come in a blinding flash or slowly brighten? Could it be harmful to look directly at it? Uh, it all just depends on how far away you are from the supernova. So uh, I think, you know, f for a supernova to actually be deadly to us, you need to be within a few dozen light years of of the supernova explosion. And essentially what would happen if you were that close is, I mean, it would be incredibly bright and it would tear away the ozone layer of the Earth. And so we'd more die because we were exposed to the radiation of the universe. If the, you know, and if it was, you know, a lot farther away from that, then it would just look like a very bright object in the sky. Supernova would brighten up pretty quickly. I mean, the, that initial flash happens, you know, as the, as the layers are falling in on your supernova. It's happening at a significant portion of the speed of light, like 70% of the speed of light as the layers are, are falling inward. So uh, at that point, you know, you're going to see a flash that's going to brighten up quickly, and then fade away over the course of several days, weeks, and, and maybe even months, depending on the kind of object that it is. But, you know, if, say, Betelgeuse went off, it would be visible brightly in the, you know, in the sky. 
So even in the daytime. Uh, Julian Martin says, I know you often talked about it, but could you do a video about how to start with the telescope and which one to buy? Yes, it's a, that's a really tough topic to do because you kind of need a bunch of telescopes in front of you that you can sort of show how they work and how to, how to show them off and how to, you know, point them at different objects and, and things like that. So I think that's, uh, I've, it's definitely a topic that I want to do, but it would require going to a place where there would be a lot of those telescopes that I can kind of get my hands on and then work with them over a period of time. So I think to properly do it would require more kind of resources resources uh, than we have at our disposal right now. Um, but it's, it's a great idea. And I, and you know, we've done this book with uh, Dave Dickinson and of course, I've been practicing with this uh, robotic telescope that good folks at Oceanside Photo and Telescope lent me, and I've had some pretty fun images. So I think, you know, I think we'll go that route, which is that it's more about kind of learning the night sky than it really is about choosing a telescope. Like choosing a telescope is easy. If you know what your budget is, then spend buy the best mount that you can get to go along with the budget that you have and then get whatever telescope will fit on top of that mount. Uh, if you just want to do visual observing, just buy a Dubsonian, buy like a six inch, eight inch light bucket. They're just a few hundred dollars and they let you see the planets and the moon and some of the brighter deep space objects, Andromeda, star clusters, things like that. And even before that, I recommend everyone get binoculars, start with binoculars and just learn the night sky. So it's, the, I mean, I know you can never really, you know, get a straight single answer from people about which telescope I should buy. And that's just because it really depends on what you want to do and what you want to get out of it. So I think I, and how do you make a video that sort of goes into all of those different paths? So that's what I want to do. I haven't figured out the right way to do it. I will definitely take a crack at it at some point. I'd love to. Uh, Roberto Bailey, have you ever met Sir Patrick Moore? No, I haven't. And he passed away, so I never will. I, you know, the, I live in Canada. He lived in, in the UK. I know he was a legend there, um, but I never got a chance to meet him, which was too bad. Arjon asks, how many LIGO-like detectors are planned? How many are functional now? What do we get with each new one? Right now, there are the two main LIGO. So LIGO, of course, these are the gravitational wave detectors, the ones that have been detecting these colliding black holes, the ones that detected the colliding neutron stars. And the two, in the United States, there's two detectors. There's the one in Washington, and there's one in Louisiana, I think. And then there's a third detector, which is out of Europe, called Virgo. And it was because they had access to that third detector, the Virgo one, that they were able to sense the direction from where the colliding, uh, the colliding neutron stars happened. And in fact, what happened was the collision happened within the detector's blind spot. So they couldn't detect that third, you know, they couldn't detect the gravitational wave in the, in the Virgo uh, experiment. And so they knew that it had to be in the, blind spot of where it is and sure enough that's where it was there's another instrument that's being created in india right now and there's another one that's being worked on in japan so over the next couple of years there will eventually be i think five major 
uh, detectors on Earth. And then, of course, the big addition will be when they build the LISA instrument, which is going to be a space-based gravitational wave detector. But the great part about this is like each one just gets added to this network and makes each one more effective and more sensitive. So more detectors, more better. All right. Let's move on. Let's see. Todd Larson says, Hi, Fraser. What do you think we would find if we could go and scoop up some matter from the surface of the sun in the far future with advanced tech would be a gas or solid the surface of the sun is hydrogen mostly hydrogen and a little bit of helium so what would you get if you could scoop that up i mean obviously it's very hot but if you could get it away uh, then it would cool down and it would just behave like hydrogen gas and helium gas and so they would float in the atmosphere of the of the earth and would hydrogen would want to light fires so it would be a very expensive way to get hydrogen all right let's get some more here uh, jamie asked the same question twice uh what is the last atom theory i have no idea sorry haven't heard of that i mean I mean, what you're asking, so Jim Becker, Jim Becker says, what is the last atom theory? The last atom attracted to the gigantic, humongous, unimaginable black hole that triggered the Big Bang. So you're making a bunch of assumptions there, right? So you're saying that there was a black hole that triggered the Big Bang. And if that's true, then you know more about the cosmos than all cosmologists, and you get to have a Nobel Prize, right? The reality is, is that nobody knows what came, what triggered the Big Bang. There is no way, really, and there may never be any way to know what came before the Big Bang. There is just, you know, we we can look back at the movements of all of the galaxies and calculate how they were once in one single place. And the cosmic microwave background radiation is this way of knowing that about 380,000 years after the Big Bang, the whole universe was cool enough that light could finally escape. And so that just gives you more evidence that that once back in time, everything was together in this one location. And as you keep mushing things together, you get to a time where where the whole universe was acting like a star. And then you get a point where where the individual protons could form and you keep going back, all the fundamental forces come together. And then you get to this place where your math just fails. You know, and they call it singularity, whatever. And we don't know what came before that point and we don't know what series of events triggered the Big Bang. And we may never know. So we just don't know what came before the Big Bang. Sorry. And so big is a black hole. Great. We don't know. Bald boy two. Hey, Fraser, wasn't there supposed to be a picture of Sagittarius a coming? Yeah. You're talking about the event horizon telescope. And this was this collection of all the radio telescopes across the entire planet and even some in space. And they were going to take a picture. They are, they took a picture, uh, within the radio spectrum of the black hole that's at the core of the Milky way. And the problem was, that one of the telescopes was in uh, Antarctica. And so they could only take this image during the summer. They could only, they took the image while it was winter in Antarctica. And then they had to wait until it's summertime there to be able to even bring the data out of Antarctica because the weather's so bad. So that's been done. But 
now they are compiling all the data. And the most recent number that I've heard is sometime in spring of 2019. But, but we just don't know. Uh, I'm surprised they haven't released some information because everybody is really excited about to see what this is going to look like. But so far, we just haven't seen any information yet. George Lancaster, can concrete be made by space only materials? Yeah. Hmm. Well, so everything that's on Earth is out in space except for life. So all of the raw materials that you would need are out in space. Um, they have done in that that video that I just did all about ISRU, ISRU. Um, they were able to make uh, concrete out of lunar regolith. And so the one thing that they want to add is this uh, magnesium oxide, I believe, and, and as sort of as a binding agent. So again, magnesium is going to be out in space. Oxygen is going to be out in space. So yeah, all of the things that they need to be able to build uh, the regolith Crete, moon Crete, is, is available on the moon. You just need to bring power to the, to the table. Fernanda Bacher. Hey, Fraser, there will be an eclipse later this month. Do you have any tips to see it better? Uh, for starters, don't live in North America right? and South America. We are out of luck this time around. It's going to be the folks in Europe. Africa is going to see it best. Uh, the Middle East, parts of Asia, Australia are going to be able to see this lunar eclipse. There's no, I mean, lunar eclipses are the best because you don't need to do anything. You just go outside at the right time and you look for the moon and you just watch the moon and it's and it's great it is it feels like magic because these chunks get taken out of the moon and then when the moon is fully covered up it turns this beautiful red color and then you can see sort of the moon reappear again and and then the shadow is gone and it's really easy to see there's no special tools involved you just watch it with your eyeballs and enjoy and it's totally safe so do that Uh, Todd Larson asks, hey, Fraser, another wild question for you. What would happen if you had an ice planet that's larger and more massive than Jupiter? Could it collapse into some weird star? That's an interesting question. Ice is made of water, right? And so water is made of hydrogen and, and oxygen. And if you had more gravitational pressure, more, gravi more gravity than Jupiter of, of hydrogen, of water, what would it do? I don't think it would do anything. It would be just a big ball of ice at the surface, liquid water underneath that, and then all kinds of exotic forms of water ice under the intense pressure and temperatures. You get closer and closer to the center of it. I, I can't imagine turning into a star. You need, you know, Jupiter won't turn into a star. You need another 77 Jupiters if you want to get the the simplest possible star, like a tiny little red dwarf. So if you had a million times the mass of Jupiter, then maybe something interesting would happen, but you'd have to get pretty, pretty beefy before you would have something that wasn't just a big ball of ice. But, you know, that's, I mean, remember, journalist, not astronomer. 
Mr. Tommy Pickles, how far would you need to travel before the constellations are unrecognizable? You have to go pretty far. Uh, if you were over in Alpha Centauri, all of the constellations would look roughly the same, except there would be the sun in one of its constellations. I don't even know what constellation. I'm sure somebody knows this. What what constellation would the sun be in from Alpha Centauri? That's an interesting question. Huh? So if someone knows the answer, please throw that in the chat. But so the sun would be a new star in, in a constellation and you obviously wouldn't see the Centaurus constellation. But um, but the if you went farther and farther out, if you went 10 light years, 20 light years, then some of the stars would start to disappear. But the reality is, is that most of the stars that you see in the night sky are actually very bright stars there and are sort of various distances away from tens of light years to a few hundred light years. So if you went a thousand light years away, you could make the sky look pretty different. JRTI drone ship. What do we think about Twitter parody accounts? I don't know. I don't really have an opinion. Uh, I know there was like some, like it depends on the parody and it depends on what their intent is. So if they're looking to poke fun at things like I think about like my one of my favorites is like the Mars Rover one, the sarcastic Rover. I love that account. And whoever is behind it does a great job. And I'm really glad that that account is there. And, and I think they're doing a wonderful job. So it depends on the account. Charles, that is all I watched a bunch of your videos lately. And you often mention ozone as a marker for life. Why is that feels like I should know but yeah, so in a more recent video, I recanted and it's about mm, six, eight videos ago, I did an episode on biomarkers and how it actually turns out that the search for biomarkers is going to get a lot more difficult than I think people had originally thought. But the reason that ozone is one of these potential biomarkers, one of these indications that there's life on another world is that you, you know, when you point your telescope at another planet across space, you're going to be looking for things that are in the atmosphere of that planet that can only occur because life is generating it things that are unstable. Here on Earth, if we didn't have all of the life, we wouldn't have the all of the oxygen this that we have in our atmosphere, whatever it's 23% oxygen, um, you wouldn't see that. But it turns out that that knowing, you know, if you observe another planet and you detect oxygen, that doesn't necessarily tell you how much of the atmosphere is oxygen. And there are natural processes that can generate oxygen. So one of the big challenges that that various groups are working on right now is to try and come up with a series of biomarkers that they can then use because this next round of telescopes like James Webb and things like that, is going to be able to directly image the atmosphere of other worlds and be able to answer some of these questions. So they want to know what they're going to be looking for. So I would, um, oh, there you go. Uh, XE4 says, according to Universe Today, uh, it would be in Cassiopeia. That's awesome. Man, I probably even wrote that article. I remember uh, us doing that. So that's really, really funny. Okay, thanks. So there you go. Uh, if you were in Alpha Centauri, the sun would be in Cassiopeia, which I wonder how it would mess it up. Now I want to see what it would look like. All right. 
Steve Schmar. Would a Mars habitat be able to somehow have Earth-like gravity inside? That is a tough question, right? And this is one of the problems with going to Mars is that the gravity on Mars is only a third of the gravity on Earth. And so the question is, if you go to Mars and try to live and, and procreate and have babies, are the babies going to be healthy? And we don't know what is going to happen in that kind of low gravity. What will happen to a person who lives on Mars for 20, 30, 50 years uh, in that kind of low gravity? What will happen on the moon where it's like 15% of the gravity of, of, of Earth? And we just don't know. Now, there have been some ideas on how you could solve this. I mean, the same idea where you would build a centrifuge and you'd spend some time in the centrifuge they could do that on mars so they could have some i've seen some ideas for this where it's like a uh, it's like a gravitron right like a big train that goes around and you you get on the train and it's kind of half tilted and then just goes around in a circle and you just spend time in this train so it adds um you know g gives you that that orbital speed that that uh, rotational uh, momentum and that provides you with artificial gravity that would work but it's a fairly complicated system to rig up and it might very well be that we just can't live for long periods of time on on mars that we can go down and visit mars and we can work down there and we can uh, explore it but we're going to want to live in orbit where you can turn you know start up your rotating colony and then it just continues to rotate forever and you don't have to continuously power it so i think you know i know a lot of people want to go and live on mars and colonize it but there's a lot of really fundamental questions that have not been answered about how safe that place is yet and and we just don't know <laughs> uh charles that is all new to all this is just amazing ask a question like this and get an answer like we're talking face to face i know i know it's it's <laughs> It's cool. I love, I really enjoy the question shows and I enjoy these live shows. It's, uh, yeah, I know, I know you think I'm doing this for you, but actually this is really good for my brain to really know what people, what questions people are interested in. And a lot of this turns into, it helps me figure out what I don't know, what parts I know less. So now I know that it's in Cassiopeia, right? Um, and I sort of build these little facts one at a time. So, um, and it helps me get ideas for future shows. So I really enjoy this and it's totally worth doing. And it, it's kind of a balance, right? Like I know sometimes I'll bring on a guest and it's really fun to have that guest. And I also like to just hang out and just answer questions uh, and and not have a guest because it's sort of, I don't know, it just feels like it's just like sticking our faces in this stream of knowledge. So anyway, I'd love to know what you think. Uh, Robert Walker says, I'd love to see the NFL, MLB, NBA extended to lunar Martian gravity someday soon. Any thoughts? Watching sports on lower gravity would be pretty amazing. Almost any sport would be wildly entertaining, I think. Uh, think about like, um, uh, you know, when baseball, right? Like if you were on Mars, you could hit the baseball three times as far. You could throw three times as far. People could jump. Uh, three meters into the air to catch a ball. Uh, people could could do really amazing things. Same thing with football. Same thing with, you know, a person could jump, in football, a person could jump over 
their opponents <laughs> while they're running at them. That would be weird. But the lower gravity would mean that you would have to learn a, a new way to run because it's actually very difficult to be able to run in that lower gravity. And so you'd have this sort of weird hopping. Like if you see the way the astronauts hopped around on the surface of the moon, they had to, uh, they had to hop around, which you'd have to learn these ways to move. So it would be pretty fascinating. I would love to see it. <laughs> baseball, Tom Pickle says baseball with jetpacks. Uh, Canada legalized it, spaced open space. Yeah, apparently Canada did legalize marijuana. And, 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 and apparently it's a big problem for Canadians visiting the border now, but visiting the U.S. border. So, <laughs> Avi's gotten flowers to just bingo on the moon. Um, Duncan Sargent asks, is it feasible that an alien race could have a space program without electricity? For example, on a world with lower gravity than Earth, maybe with chemical rockets, steam thrusters, etc. That would be... It would be tough to have another kind of technology on another world, right? That the laws of physics as we understand them, that you burn things, that you can use nuclear fission, that you can um, create electricity. I mean, those laws of physics are going to hold on other parts of the universe. And so it's most likely that they're going to realize they're going to consider all of the different kinds of technology at their disposal. And they're going to use the ones like we have that provide them the most bang for the buck. And it's hard to uh, beat chemical rockets, right? They, they work really well. I mean, yeah, it's a bomb that's going off, but it gets the job done. So I can't imagine steam power, ever being able to provide the kind of energy that you require to be able to get into space. Uh, Alpha Mope, big fam, what is your favorite common misnomer in the realm of physics? Hmm, that's a good question. I would love to throw that one back to you folks. Uh, what would be a misnomer that you have in the realm of physics? My brain is all, I, I mean, I can't think of things that, that I have to address that commonly, I mean, you see the same kinds of misunderstandings again and again with different concepts in, in physics. And so you sort of have a pat response, you have a rehearsed response to each one of them. But uh, I would love to uh, know what are some of the misnomers that, that you like. Bob Woodward, Trudeau or Trump? No politics, man. I don't know. Not my, uh, I, all I know is that when anyone talks about politics, it just turns to a uh, blasted hellscape and makes it no fun. So, uh, you've probably seen that I don't bring up politics and I don't plan to, uh, it's not interesting to me and I don't find that it ever ends in anything that's productive. We're here to talk about space. That's what we share. We are pro, we are the pro space party. And that is what, uh, you know, that's my preference. And so I'm not going to talk about politics. I, I have my politics, you know, my exotic Canadian politics, but that's my, that's my sort of stance on it. You know, is it the Whig party or the Tories? <laughs> All right. 
Bass Angler 73. What's your thoughts on the Electric Universe? I have no thoughts. Again, I am a journalist, not a, a you know astronomer, and there are plenty of uh, cosmologists and astrophysicists that I respect that have looked at the Electric Universe theory and find that it doesn't match their predictions don't match the evidence that's been found and so it doesn't hold up uh let's see maybe <laughs> cotton flower i have an idea for artificial gravity for the bfr should i tweet the image to elon uh yeah totally uh he loves twitter and loves to answer people's questions you should totally do it Shane Sanders, what do you think of multiverse theories? Uh, I don't, again, um, I'm a journalist, not a cosmologist. And so, you know, there are plenty of ideas for the different kinds of multiverses that could be out there from the quantum, uh, like the various ideas of, of quantum mechanics, how new universes could split off every time new decisions get made to the kinds of multiple universes that could happen because of inflation. And one of the implications of, of the theory of inflation sort of demands multiverses, but until we can detect any evidence that any of these things exist, we really won't be able to go any, any farther. And it's entirely possible that we'll never know again, we'll never know what came before the big bang and we'll never know what's outside the universe. Justin Ostertag, say we had the tech to do so. Could you pump enough gas into Jupiter to increase its mass and turn it into another sun? Yep, no problem. All you would have to do is find another 77 Jupiters. So if you take Jupiter and you crash another 77 Jupiters into it, you can make a star. Terry Weaver, what do you think the idea that life started on comets, uh, long, stable cycles of low variation could dust earth with proto-life early. Uh, one of the things that's really fascinating is how much organic material is being found out in space. And for example, the, on Ceres, they had found some organic molecules, these things called aliphates, essentially sooty material that likes to burn, you know, propane, uh, butane, these are all sort of in this same family. And they found some of these things on Ceres, which is uh, pretty amazing. And then more recently, they found more than they were expecting. And so the idea that these organic molecules are out there in space, and they're being formed naturally, is pretty amazing. And so it, it doesn't, you know, if we think that maybe a lot of the water came to Earth on comets, maybe a lot of the organic material came from comets as well. So it's a pretty exciting idea. Did life form here on Earth? Or did life form somewhere else and spread to Earth? You know, with the panspermia idea? We don't really know, right? Until we can find, if we can find, this is why it's so important to find life on, on say, Mars, for example, and to not pollute Mars until we've had a chance to really properly search it for life, is that we want to find out when, if we do find life, we want to find out if we had a common ancestor. And if we did have a common ancestor, when did that common ancestor form? And where did it start? And if it turns out that the common ancestor came from Mars, then 
then life on Earth came from Mars via the panspermia method, and, and it would be proof that it happened. And George, uh, Tom Pickles is saying to forget Enceladus, and there's all these places, right? That there are all these places where you're finding this organic, this organic material. And it seems more likely that organic material would come from an object with less mass and spread to one with greater mass than the other way around. So if an asteroid smashed into Mars, it would be a lot easier for material to smash off Mars, blast into space because of the lower gravity on Mars and the, the thinner atmosphere, and travel through space and get eventually crash into the Earth than to go the other way around. That's why we find, say, asteroids of, you know, we find chunks of Mars here on Earth. Um, so it's a compelling idea, and we just need evidence as always all these things just require evidence and this is how this works you you have a neat idea you work out the math to say it should be possible for life to move from world to world and then you have to find evidence to uh to do it william devane how <laughs> fraser how hard of a job is doing what you do uh good question that's a tough one uh it's a hard job actually uh, i work pretty hard i don't know if it look if it shows if it looks like I'm just, you know, effortlessly hanging out and just kind of doing my thing, man. But uh, no, I mean, my main job is to run Universe Today. And so that's about uh, reviewing all the stories and uh, working with the various writers who are in assigning stories they're going to be working on. I also co-host Astronomy Cast, and I also host the Weekly Space Hangout, and I also write the weekly newsletter for Universe Today. And then I do, I write the scripts for the videos, and I also do the question shows and we do the filming of them and I also answer all the emails and as you see I'm in in the the comments in the chat so it's tough it is a lot of work but kind of I get to live my life talking to people about space I get to talk to astronauts and I get to talk to astronomers and I get to I get to read interesting books and I learn about research and I get to go on cool trips and see interesting gear uh, so it's worth it. And, but I mean, cool jobs don't necessarily come easy. So, uh, it's funny. Like I see a couple of people out there that kind of hustle. Like I don't know if people ever watch Casey Neistat, right? Um, and the way he works, that's kind of the way I work. Uh, it's, you can always be doing more and you can always be going faster and you can kind of automate things and go faster and work harder. And and the more that you work, the more amazing opportunities that you see. I have no shortage of just amazing ideas for projects and things I'd love to work on. And I just don't have enough hours in the day and enough resources, right? And the fact that people are, are my patron and will fund a lot of the projects that we work on is kind of amazing. So I feel a duty to, to keep the energy up and keep it, keep it rolling and try to create the best material that I can. So, so yeah, no, definitely work hard. Uh, and I wouldn't even be able to do this job. I mean, people ask me, you know, it's funny when people like, write Like, Oh, you know, like why I hate Patreon or I, you know, I hate advertising. You know, why do you say that kind of stuff? But if I couldn't be funded by those ways, I would be probably a computer programmer or I would be, um, uh, probably running a software company, right? I'd be working in a software field somewhere because that's how I would be able to put food on the table for my family. And so the fact that I'm able to do this job, which is not the best paying job, um, is amazing. And uh, I take it really seriously. So 
Yeah, John Yoga says, careful, the reward, the reward for job well done is more work. Yeah, absolutely. And this is one of the things why I'm such a big fan of trying to place as much of the trust as I can in the people who are fans of the show. Uh, that, uh, oh, that's a good question, um, Grant. I want to answer that in a second. Um, yeah, I want, and so that's why I have this really great relationship with the folks from the Weekly Space Hangout crew, right? Where, where they're like, you should get so-and-so on as a guest. I'm like, I've only got so many hours in the day. You get them on as a guest. I will be glad to interview them and I will tell them that you're my executive producer. And this is sort of how Nancy Atkinson sort of, uh, I'm sorry, um, Nancy Graziano uh, sort of came on board with what I'm doing and a lot of the other folks in the Weekly Space Hangout crew is like that that they've got all this enthusiasm, they've got guests that they want to see, and it's surprisingly easy to just reach out to a person and say, hey, do you want to be a guest on the show? Fraser would be happy to interview you, and then you just put two and two together. So, so I think that there is an amazing kind of model where it's not just – the fan and the creator, but where it's actually this sort of more of a blend where the creator works with the fans, with the people that, that consume the content to help create the kind of content that they want more of. So that's what I'm, you know, that's the way I think this will play out over time is, you know, you're all watching this and you're like, oh, this is great, but I really would like to bring on some special guest. Wow, I can actually reach out and talk to the guest and get them on the show and Fraser would be glad to interview them. Like, I'll do my part. I'll do the interview part, and you can help us find a uh, find a find a guest. So, uh, Grant Lanny asks, "Who is my white whale as a guest?" The, okay, so here's the amazing part: is I don't think there's okay. Obviously, I'd like to in interview Elon Musk, and I don't see him in any sort of short time frame uh, coming on the show. Um, but maybe you know, who knows someday. But apart from that. I can't think of anybody who I couldn't interview if I really wanted to. Uh, I've had a chance to interview many astronauts, uh, many astronomers, Nobel Prize winners, uh, folks high up at NASA, at the European Space Agency. It's kind of amazing the kind of access that, that I have. I just doesn't, it doesn't occur to me, right? Like, it's, it, I, I just never think, oh, I should go and call up NASA and get, you know, the head of their science department to come on the show. But in many cases, there are ways that I can reach out to these people. Uh, yeah. So Phil Forrest is saying, Seth Shostak, have you interviewed him? Yes. Uh, he's on. He's been on the Weekly Space Hangout. Um, Jim Green, the chief scientist at NASA, has been on the Weekly Space Hangout. Like I said, astronauts have been on the Weekly Space Hangout. Uh, David Brin. Okay, so this there you go. So a couple of weeks ago, people said, "Oh, we should have David Brin." Okay, great. I reached out. David Brin is going to be on this show uh, in August. So the thing that I'm bad at is, is organizing guests, and this is why I work so well with Nancy Graziano and the and the rest of the Weekly Space Hangout crew. Is they are great at organizing guests. All right, hold on. Let's get the date here. Uh, David Brin. Uh, August 6th. So he's going to come on and talk. <laughs> so, uh, so if you want guests, if you want, if you see someone that you like, uh, just join the weekly space hangout crew. They will give you your marching orders. They'll tell you how to be able to invite guests on the show and boom, 
Uh, Max Tegmark, I'm sure we could get him. That's not so hard. Uh, Dennis E. Taylor, the writer of the Bobiverse, I'm sure we could get him. And he just wrote a new book that I'm sure he'd be happy to promote. The trick is you want to invite these people when they are looking to promote their projects. Uh, we could probably get people from The Expanse. So I need your help to join that group to be able to help bring on some of these guests. And then boom. Um, and so the, the David Brin one, I'm, I happen to, you know, know David Brin. And so I was able to go, Hey David, do you want to come on the show? And he's like, yeah, I'll be on the show. And then that was really easy for me. And then, and so that's it. Maybe I'm kind of lazy. I work hard, but I'm lazy. Sean Carroll, that would be no problem. I'm sure we could get Sean Carroll. So literally anybody you can imagine, we can probably interview. I just can't think of all the ideas. So, so help me help you. All right. Thanks for the maple syrup funds. Australian. Our dollars are like exactly the same amount. Stefan Bradonjic. Uh, hi, Fraser. What is the best method of spacecraft propulsion in your opinion? My uh, Don Pettit already interviewed on the Weekly Space Hangout. Uh, all right. Or maybe we haven't. I thought we have. Anyway, uh, so best method of spacecraft propulsion, in my opinion. Uh, it just depends on what you needed to do. So chemical rockets are the best way to get them off of the planet. Um, ion drives seem to be the best way to get uh, them moving around uh, in space. The nuclear rockets seem like a really cool idea, but there's a lot of challenges in getting them going. So you just need to have the right rocket for the right environment. Tim Smith, how about doing a collaboration with Joe Scott? He referenced your universe today. Already did a collaboration with Joe Scott. Um, we did one on the Curiosity Rovers. Uh, Steve Nerlich from Cheap Astronomy used to write for Universe Today. Uh, we would definitely love to have him. No, so, okay, so Don Pettit hasn't been on the show. Oh, well, there you go. Nancy, there's your challenge. Uh, it'd be fun to talk to him. Grant Kirst. Uh, is it possible to upscale the breakthrough Starshot experiment to maybe send larger things to other stars? Um, uh, maybe, but we don't know how well the microprobe version is going to work first. We know that the idea of a photonic propulsion system where you blast a solar sail with a laser will probably work, but we don't know what is the size of the laser that you're going to need, what is the maximum speed that things can go, we just don't we just don't know so we need to start with the tiniest possible version and then scale it up one of the ideas for what uh radio bursts are is that they are actually um uh that they are the fast radio bursts these kind of mysterious blasts of radio transmissions that people see is that these are alien civilizations firing their lasers and sending their spacecraft from star to star so it's a pretty cool idea uh Don, someone recommended Don Dixon. That would be awesome. Uh, I've talked to him. Uh, Bobby Duke Arts. Hey, Bobby Duke. Um, have you done a collaboration with Cody's Lab? Yes. Uh, he was on this show about four weeks ago. So uh, I know it's hard. I, I know we, we're closing in on a thousand videos here on this channel. So, um, so, we've, so I know it's hard to sort of, maybe some way we can search all the guests and then recommend other guests. But I don't, I, I guess this is the thing, right? Is like, I can't, 
I need your help. So, so by all means, recommend a guest, but join the Weekly Space Hangout crew. They will, they will show you how to re reach out to guests and cue them up for both here and for the Weekly Space Hangout. So that'd be awesome. You know, it's, it's totally fine. I mean, it's just so many um, shows that we've done and so many people that we've talked to. It's amazing that we even get a chance to. All right. Uh, ooh, Anne on asks, will Curiosity Rover uh, survive the dust storm? Yeah, Curiosity is going to be fine. Curiosity is going to be awesome. Uh, Curiosity doesn't care one bit about the dust storm. Now, Opportunity is in trouble. Um, and this is the worst dust storm that is, uh, has been seen on the surface of Mars in essentially recorded history. For as long as we've been able to measure and see dust storms on the surface of Mars, this is the worst one. And of course, just our luck, right? We get the closest, best Mars in 15 years, and the place is covered in dust. So it's, you can see some pictures of what it should look like and then what it really does look like, and it's just, it's just awful. So the problem with Opportunity is that it's been there for a long time and its batteries are wearing down. They only run about 85% of the charge than they when they started, which is great. I mean, it's, it's pretty amazing for 15 year old batteries to still hold 85% of their charge. But the problem is, is that opportunity needs to keep itself warm during these, this Martian dust storm, and it's like almost black there where it is right now. So um, we're not going to know until the dust storm clears up. And that's still probably a couple of weeks away before we actually the dust storm finally clears up and then they're going to try and reconnect with opportunity and hopefully it will come back. And maybe it won't. And still I mean, every day that you have with opportunity is a treasure. I mean, that thing has been around for, like I said, uh, 15 years, 14 years, it's amazing 5000 days on the surface of Mars. It's a stunning accomplishment. So um, I'll try and find a picture because it's just a great picture from uh, one of my favorite astrophotographers, a uh, guy named Damien Peach just takes these just incredible pictures. It's like he's got his own Hubble Space Telescope. There we go. Uh, someone's mentioning Dave Dickinson. We will absolutely get uh, Dave Dickinson to join me. I, in fact, I think, here we go. Check this out. So I wonder if I can make this go. So you can see here, these are the surface features that you should be seeing on Mars, and it's just this haze. But this is this is a this is an amateur with a ground-based telescope. Amazing. Phil Forrest, in your opinion, is the ISS the most blandly named spacecraft in history? Uh, yeah, I guess so. I never thought of that. But yeah, it's kind of a bland name, isn't it? The International Space Station. But it's, a, it's, it's an appropriately named spacecraft, right? It's a collaboration of many countries around the world that work together to build a space station in space. So I, I understand. It's probably the name I would come up with. Mike McHugh, do you have a question that you think Elon may have been asked, may not have not been asked in previous interviews? Uh, that is a 
Great question, man. So when, so when I interview people, uh, I'm trying to, it's a, it's an interesting process. And if you've never kind of done this, it's a bit like a sport. Like you're trying to figure out what the landscape is. And the more you know about them, the more you know the answers, and the more you know about your audience, but what your audience is familiar about, then you can cut through a lot of the boring parts and really get to the meat of the interview. And so like if I was talking to Elon Musk, I would be going into really kind of excruciating detail about how this works, how that works, how does the BFR, it's going to fly, you know, what are the speeds, the velocities, you know, I would want to know a lot of those kinds of those details, but also some of the larger sort of philosophical implications of of that spacecraft and what it's going to be able to do and what it could be able to do down the road. Well, you know, what has he been imagining? So I think that, you know, when, when most people who aren't sort of in the field do these kinds of interviews, they are generally just too general, right? They just don't go into the specifics that I think a certain, certain audience is going to want. So that would be my preference would just be to go into the nitty gritty details. Jashari Artwell, how far does the universe expand? Uh, the universe could be infinite. So forever. Uh, Damien Reloaded, Fraser, could there be a nebula so dense that we could breathe in it? No, well, no, no, I'm going to say no. Um, in fact, if you were right outside, say, the Orion Nebula, in your spaceship and you looked out the window, you probably wouldn't even be able to see the nebula. It would be so diffuse. It would only be a few more atoms per cubic meter in the Orion Nebula than not. So that would be, uh, it's sort of disappointing. It's only when you use these uh, really long duration, long exposure images from cameras that you can actually see those kind of colors. But but no, they're actually very, very diffuse. Uh, all right, two more minutes, and then we'll wrap this up. Spanish onion, thank you. Yeah, don't ask him what the BFR stands for. The BFR, he, he's been pretty clear about it, that it is a reference to the game Doom and the BFG 9000 in that game. So, yeah. Uh, all right, so I'm just going to wrap this up. So uh, as you probably know, I'm on a bit of a hiatus. Uh, so we're Astronomy Cast and the Weekly Space Hangout. We are taking a break until we get back in September. Uh, I'm probably going to be taking a hiatus from this for about three weeks, I think. Uh, we've got some episodes still in the can for the actual uh, – for the coming out on the channel. Uh, we've got Space Navigation is – being edited by Chad right now and then we've got after that uh, the missing matter the missing baryonic matter has been found and that's uh, uh, we're going to shoot that tomorrow I think so there should be still some content while we're gone uh, but it's going to get a little weird over uh, the next couple of weeks and then I'll be back and we'll get cranking again so thanks everyone for watching thanks as always to the good folks at the weekly space hangout crew who are all over in the in the chat i really appreciate your help if you want to join that community if you want to help uh get some guests you should join that community go to wshcrew.space and uh and hang out with them and chat with them over the summer while we wait for all of this stuff to come back
All right. I will uh, see you all uh, in about three weeks. Thanks, everybody.